0: If you're a Christian, you want to see your neighborhood, workplace, and city renewed by the gospel. But in today's culture, the challenges to sharing our faith or discipling someone can feel almost insurmountable. How can we effectively share our faith in spite of tough questions and misconceptions about Christianity? Today's podcast features teaching from the 2019 Missional Living Conference held at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Listen as Dr. Keller explores how we can share our faith in a way that is relevant, winsome, and true. After you listen, we invite you to go online to gospelandlife.com and sign up for our email updates. When you sign up, you'll receive our quarterly newsletter with articles from Dr. Keller, as well as other valuable gospel-centered resources. Subscribe today at gospelandlife.com.
1: First 30 years of my uh, ministry life were pretty, have been, were a lot different than the last 10 years. And a lot of you, I know you're saying, you don't look that old. <coughs> uh, that's irony, by the way. Americans don't get ironies, but that was irony, all right. First 30 years, I spent most of my time with, uh, born-again churches. Churches filled with people who say they're born again. For those 30 years I spent most of the time saying, you know, you've got to care about the poor. You've got to do justice. You've got to love your neighbor. Have you read the Good Samaritan parable? So I spent all my time saying, you've got to do that. You can't just talk about, you can't just do word. You need to do deed. Jesus was mighty in word and deed, it says. So we can't just be a place where we're always talking about Christianity and about the faith. We need to be doing it. So let's get out there. Let's help the poor. Let's you know be a good neighbors. Now, I can tell you, in the last 10 years in New York City, for example, amongst Christians, I have not had to beat that drum that much. Everybody wants to do that. There's a whole lot of reasons for it. And that's great. However, now, in the last 10 years, I've got to say, but you've got to open your mouth. You've got to explain why you're doing it. You've got to, you have to tell people in whose name you're doing it. Because just like Jesus, Christians are supposed to be mighty in word and deed. And the fact of the matter is, and I'm, I'm giving us credit here, there are headwinds uh, that we have now that if you wanted to open your mouth and share your faith and talk to people around you about your faith and Christianity, that uh, 40 years ago just weren't there. They just weren't there. In fact, I'd like to talk, this first half of my my, my discussion here, uh, I'd like to talk about four headwinds that we have, and it's making it very hard, and especially uh, the younger you are, the more likely you feel these headwinds with the people around you. The younger you are, the more you feel these headwinds. First of all, there's the problem of attention. It's hard to get people's attention to even... Uh, care to talk about Christianity. It's not just that more and more people think Christianity is irrelevant. Yes, of course that's true. So they're not going to pay it attention. They're not going to listen. But it's more than that. Uh, there's a good book by Alan Noble called Disruptive Witness, and he talks about the fact that in, a, in an Internet culture, in a social media-dominated culture, uh, and some of us are more shaped by it than others. Those of us who are older are less shaped by it because it has, been a, uh, has not been as big a part of our uh, life proportionally. But what social media does is it makes you distracted, that you never pay a whole lot of attention over a, in a sustained way to much of anything. Now, as a result of that, you never change deeply. Uh, if you're constantly going from thing to thing to thing which is what it means to be on social media you're going to thing to thing to thing to thing like this you, you zip from one thing to another thing to another thing and you might make changes but they're superficial changes because the only way you change deeply is if you pay an, an awful lot of attention over a long period of time to something you have to give yourself to it you have to, you have to reflect on it you have to take it inside you have to, you have to uh, pay attention over a long period of time that's the only way you change in any direction at all And virtually nobody does that anymore. And the younger you are, the less you're able to do it. So it's very hard to get people's attention. How do we even talk, how do we get people's attention to talk about Christ? Number two, uh, there's the problem of comprehension. And the reason is, and this is a (laughs) incredibly uh, uh, over general, it's, you know, actually, when it comes to talk about culture, unless you over generalize, you're going to be boring. And I don't want to be boring tonight. So let me over generalize that up until this culture, every other culture, you found truth outside of yourself. And you went outside to find truth. Your truth was God or family or the nation or something like that. But in our culture, you find truth by going deep inside yourself. You find truth inside. That's where you find truth. And only you can decide who you are and only you have the right to tell, uh, to, to determine for yourself what is right or wrong. Nobody has the right to tell you what is right or wrong. And so truth and, and right and wrong are things you discover on the inside. Now, that's the, this is the first culture in history like that. Every other culture, different religions, of course, they, they differed on what the truth was. The Hindu culture, the Muslim culture, the Buddhist culture, the animist culture. They, they, all, they differed on what that truth was outside but they all agreed that there was a truth on the outside, which meant you could fall short of it. You could, therefore, you were, therefore, you were a sinner. You never lived up to the, to the moral standard. But what happens in a culture that's dedicated to the idea that nobody can make you feel guilty, you decide what is right or wrong for you, nobody can impose their values on you, you have to live your own truth. Is that a culture in which people actually have the idea of sin? Not exactly. So in every other culture, when you did evangelism, when you talked to a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or anybody about uh, the gospel, you could assume that they knew that there was a truth outside of themselves and they fell short of it in some way. And therefore, you could work on that. There was a space there. You know you're a sinner. You know that you haven't lived like you should. Here's what Christianity is to say to you. But this is the first culture in which that's not there. There's an awful lot of a typical gospel presentation that is completely incomprehensible, not just, obviously if I tell a gospel presentation to a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist, they may say you're wrong, in fact they may say you're really wrong, but they understand what you're saying, they have a different understanding of the sacred order, they have a different understanding of how to connect to the sacred order, which is a truth outside of yourself, a moral absolute transcendent norm of some kind, but what you have in our culture is people have no concept of that. So how do you even do your normal gospel presentation? Okay. You know, when I was uh, in, in the 1970s, uh, when I was in uh, Virginia, I could go to any place in, the, in, in my little town, uh, whether the person's believed in God or not or went to, Christ- went to uh, church or not. I could say, hey, when you die, you want to be all right, don't you? You want to know that when you die, you're, you're, you're going to go to heaven. And everybody would nod, uh, and you know you're supposed to be a good person, right? Everybody would nod, but you know you're not as good as you ought to be. Everybody would nod. Well, I got something to say to you, and they either accepted it or rejected it. But basically, they they, they 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 it was comprehensible. But none of those first three or four questions in a place like New York, usually you're not going to get a nod, are you? So it's not comprehens. So it's the problem of attention, the problem of uh, comprehension. Then there's the problem of attraction. Now, people are not going to sit still and listen to a presentation on why Christianity is true unless they have some sense that it wouldn't be so bad if it was true. But what if, what, if they're absolutely, not only, what if they are utterly offended by Christianity, the very idea of it? And increasingly, there's people like that. I'll tell you why real quick. We are, in some ways, becoming like the early church in this way. The early Christians were the most persecuted and the most uh, the, the most vilified of all the various religions, and the reason was this: that everybody had their own gods. So, if you if you uh, were from the city of Parthia, you uh, there was the Parthian gods. If you were from the city of Scythia, there were the Scythian gods. There was the you know the, every every town. Uh, every guild, if you were a leather worker, there were leather working gods. If you were a, uh, very often if you had a family, a large estate, there were always, always household gods. And you could have your gods, that's fine. But when you came to my town, when you came to my house, you had to pay tribute. You had to light a candle. You had to show obeisance of some kind. And that was just the only, that's how you did it. That's how you showed respect to that town or to that house or to those people. Christians were the first ones to come along. The Jews, of course, did not worship other gods, but at least the uh, Romans and Greeks looked at the Jews as very strange people, but at least they were a particular racial group, and they said, well, they've got their god, we've got our god, we've got these gods. They're, they're kind of narrow-minded, but there they are. The Christians came along, and they be- and they were Greek Christians and Roman Christians and Scythian and Parthian, and they were, they, they were the Christians came from all these different groups, but then they said, no, we cannot We cannot bow down to idols. And therefore, Christians in that time were not just weird, though they were. They were dangerous because they were a threat to the social order. They were incredibly offensive because they would not honor all the deities. And of course, the Romans thought they were being more open-minded and the Christians were being closed-minded. What they were actually telling the Christians is, you have got to honor the reality of every deity. And the Christians were saying, we can't. What you're really saying is we can't be Christians. You're being intolerant. But here's the interesting thing. They were seen as a danger to the social order. They showed disrespect to people. And they were afraid, of course. You, you take a look at Acts 19. The fear is that Christians would stop worshiping the gods in the, you know, the temple of Diana in, in Ephesus. And, and the gods would get angry. They were, they were really considered a danger. But here's what Christians had to do. They had to say, you watch us. You say we're not good citizens. You would say we're not good neighbors. Well, we do love you, and we will be the best neighbors, but we cannot bow the knee to the reality of these other deities, that we don't believe in them. Now today, we're in a similar situation, right? You see how? Charles Taylor, the great philosopher, says that modern people believe the sacred is inside you. We may not believe in a God out there, but we believe there's something sacred inside you. You have depths inside you. So going in and discovering your identity is a religious thing. It's a sacred thing, and nobody can question it. And nobody in any way can question it. Well, of course, if, uh, we're the first, as I just said a minute ago, we're the first culture in which identity is deified. It's unquestioned. It's not allowed to be questioned in any way because there isn't any standard outside of the self to judge it. There's no truth out here. It's all in here. So if you as a Christian disagree with a person about any of their beliefs that they think are part of their identity, then you are the bigot. You are a danger to the social order. And Christians are in the same spot. We have to say, no. We ca- you are being intolerant, actually. You're telling us we actually have to agree with your beliefs about identity. And we don't believe that about identity. There's never been a culture that believed what we believe here about identity. We don't believe it. But we do love you. We will love you. We can be good citizens. We can be the best neighbors you watch. Now, of course, there was a lot of persecution then. Maybe there'll be persecution now. I don't know. But you see why Christianity is not seen as a very attractive thing. Because there is a, there's, if there is a baseline belief in our culture, it's that identity is deity, and therefore, if you question anybody's beliefs about who they are at all, uh, then you're, you're questioning, you know, you, well, in a way, it, you're doing the very same thing. You're showing disrespect the way the early Christians shows disrespect to the gods, and yet Christians have to say, look, sorry. You're the ones being exclusive, but all we're going to do is we're going to say, no matter what you do to us, we're going to love you. We're going to be the good citizens. We're going to show you. Nevertheless, it's a hard sell. There's one more thing to say, quick. Uh, there's the problem of the, uh, as I said, there's the problem of, the, of attention. There's the problem of comprehension. There's a the problem of attraction. There's also a problem, uh, the problem of attraction means how do you attract people to an offensive thing like Christianity now? And the last thing is the problem of the spectrum. What I mean by that is, that there's really not just one... I wish everybody out there just hated Christianity, but it's not that simple. You've got all kinds of people. I talked some years ago, especially in New York, I talked some time years ago to a man who um, uh, lived in London, and he said that when he... he was a minister. He says, when I come out my door, to the left on my block are mainly Muslims and, and Hindus, people from the south you know the South Asian the continent, uh, mainly Hindus and Muslims, and to the north are mainly white people, white English people, and he says the people to my left think Christianity is too morally lax; it's not morally strong enough. You know, it's and the people to my right think that Christianity Christianity is too moralistic. You know, it's, it's too down on people. It's always talking about sin. The people over here are here saying, Christians are just too loose. They're not morally strong enough. And the man said to me, can you give me a gospel presentation, you know, uh, you know an outline of the gospel that I can give to everybody on my block? And I said, no. <laughs> no way. Because these are people in radically different places. Their understanding of truth is different. Their understanding of identity is different. Their understanding of reality is different. It's all different. And now we live in, especially in places like New York, we live in pluralistic societies, and you have no idea who you're going to be reaching out to and talking to. They could be from different planets when it comes to worldview. You put all that together, we have headwinds. But I'll just say this. These are the headwinds. Uh, And I'll be quick because I know I've spoken on this in the past, not too long ago. Uh, John Stott wrote a little book some years ago uh, and I read it as a brand new Christian, and I never really forgot it. He says, "When it comes, it was about evangelism, it was about sharing your faith." And he said, "When it comes down to it, um, if your heart has been affected by the gospel, you'll find a way. Headwinds are no headwinds. It is, it, in the end, he says, it's not whether you've been trained. It's not whether you have the right answers to all the hard questions you're going to get." It's, it's a question of the heart. And he said, if, you, if the gospel has really affected the heart, it, it means it'll affect it in four ways. Number one, the gospel gets rid of pride, it tells you you're just a, a sinner. And that gets rid of the idea that you have all the answers and you're superior to the person you're talking to, which makes you a terrible, terrible witness to the faith. So it gets rid of your pride, which is one of the, and harshness and abrasiveness and argumentativeness. It gets rid of that. It should. And that's one of the main reasons that we're actually pretty ineffective when it comes to talking about our faith. Number two, the gospel should get rid of your fear. Of course you should be afraid of offending, unnecessarily afraid of hurting people. Of course you should. But that's not really what we're afraid of. We're afraid of being thought of a religious fanatic. We're afraid it's going to hurt our job. We're afraid it's going to hurt our network. Isn't that right? And see, the gospel says... You are loved in Christ. God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God. Meaning God looks at us and he sees us as absolutely beautiful. And our self-image should be based on the fact that the only eyes in the universe whose opinion counts sees you as an absolute beauty. Yet We're scared by what other people say because frankly the gospel hasn't sunk in deep enough to really change our identity to a great degree we take our, our self-worth and our self-regard from what people think of us the gospel should get rid of fear it should get rid of pride it should get rid of pessimism if you look at somebody around you and say that's not that person that's not the kind of person who would ever become a Christian oh and you are how wonderful of you you're such you were such promising material. How wonderful of you to come to God and let Him do something with you. Uh, uh, there's this little verse in Romans three that says, "No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Every person who becomes a Christian is a miracle. You're a miracle. And if you're pessimistic about anybody, you've forgotten what a miracle of grace you are. And number four, lastly, the gospel should give you enough joy and love." That you really say, boy, i want, sticking my neck out like this. It's, it could be terrible. I'm shy. I don't like upsetting people. But it is just unloving for me to never open my mouth. And so John Stott concludes his little talk with a pretty convicting statement, the way he often did. He uh, basically talks about the fact. He says, "Oh yeah." He says, "Nothing closes the mouth." like the, pover- the secret poverty of our spirit the secret poverty of our spiritual life this, the fact that the gospel is not really animating us if the gospel is animating us if it really changed our heart in those ways, taking those things away uh, giving us a gospel humility giving us a gospel fearlessness giving us a gospel love giving us a gospel hope we'll find a way headwinds or no headwinds we'll find a way
0: For many in our culture today, Biblical Christianity is a dangerous idea, challenging some of their deepest beliefs. In her book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin explores the hard questions that keep many people from considering faith in Christ. Tackling issues including gender and sexuality, science and faith, and the problem of suffering, McLaughlin shows that what seems like roadblocks to faith in Jesus can become signposts to a relationship with Him. Confronting Christianity is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the love of Christ with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com slash give. That's gospelandlife.com slash
2: give. How are the headwinds you've described different for various generations, millennials, boomers?
1: That's an easy question. I think I hinted at it. It seems to me that they're just stronger the younger. In other words, it's uh, um, the younger the generation, the younger you are, the more likely you'll feel the headwinds. You'll feel the resistance You'll feel uh, a, a real unease on the part of the people, uh, friends and people around you if you start talking about faith or religion. So I think it's as simple as that. Though I, the, thing that's, the, thing that, <laughs> the thing about New York that's so odd is, uh, is because it's so diverse, let me just give you a quick example. I would say that if you're talking to, a, to Hindu parents who moved here from India... And, but their kids were raised here. They still are, consider themselves Hindu, but they went off to college here and grew up here. I think you probably would find the, uh, uh, the younger generation perhaps a little more open to the things you're saying than the older one. Mm-hmm. So it's a little, you know, in a multi ethnic, multiracial place, it's a little, uh, it's dangerous to make a generalization. But I'll, I will say, in general, it's the younger you are, the more the headwinds.
2: Okay. So our second question: um, What is the best way to even start a conversation about Jesus with people of the pantheistic persuasion—Hindus or Buddhists?
1: Oh, um, really depends a great deal because Hindus and Buddhists are—I uh, don't know—we, uh, uh, we, you know, in our—we've lived in the same. Apartment building and the same room, I mean the same apartment for 30 years, and we have actually had uh, both Muslim. Uh, it's funny. It's almost like we have a we have a Hindu room and a Muslim room. It's for some reason there's one one apartment that's always had a Muslim family in it. There might be something there, um, and uh, I think what happens is you get you get to know people as neighbors, and it just it just comes up. But they'll they'll start talking about the fact that on. You know the Muslim, uh, uh, the the wife, mother at the one end. She, they're not. It's a family that's gone now. Just got into a relation. Got into talking to Kathy about uh, the fact that she teaches what we would call Sunday school, except that they do it on Friday. And what she, it's. It, I think the way you start is you you befriend them. There is no such thing as friendship evangelism. There's friendship. And if you, and I'll I'll talk about this maybe a little bit afterwards, if you basically are a friend with somebody and you just don't hide the fact you're a Christian, it tends to come up somewhere. So I don't know that I would, unless you're really in a hurry, I wouldn't want to give you conversational strategies for how do you get around to the Christian, You say, you know, know, one of the ways to do it is at a restaurant, you say, is this seat saved? You say, no, but I am. Actually, that was a bad example, everybody. You know, like I said before, Americans don't do irony. So this is scary. I'm afraid you're going to do it. So I I really think that conversational strategies, I've read them, I've seen them, and I go, ugh. Uh, Some of you, though, may be more direct than I am, and you can get away with it. Some of you have a temperament I don't have. And that is you can just say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about, uh, I I can't do that. Be a friend. Get to know them. Uh, just don't hide who you are or or the fact that you go to church, and it just comes up.
2: Okay, so now in the work environment, and you know that we spend a lot of time at work um, as New Yorkers, so what's your advice on sharing the gospel in the workplace? Does anybody have success?
1: Sure. I mean, but you you know, some of this, I, I will, I think, actually speak to this afterwards. I mean, in my second talk, I'll speak to it. But uh, in the workplace, I do think because it's uh, it's the workplace relationships as you know now are so under scrutiny in a way they weren't uh, even 10 years ago. But I do think you have to be extremely careful because what somebody considers offensive might not be what you can consider reasonable. But that's that's they're they're different. So I do think again. Uh, this is the problem with conversational strategies, where a person you don't really know, you haven't really walked with them much, you haven't gotten to know them, you haven't shown sympathy or interest in them, uh, they haven't come to like you, really, and you start to try to get into the subject of faith, that's where in the workplace, especially in a place like New York, it could really, really be uh, taken, taken ill, as it were. So, uh, but I'll talk more about that afterwards.
2: Okay, Politics. Um, looking at the current political climate um, and the church's role in that, um, does it contribute to the attraction or distraction from Jesus himself and therefore Christianity?
1: Uh, the way the press, the way most people think about it, it's a, it's a, it's a big problem for talking to people about faith in, in, in New York City. By the way, it helps if you're not white. In other words, if you're not white and you're in New York City, you're, you're, you're probably, if you talk about your faith, you're probably not going to be as quickly seen as part of the problem. As simple as that, okay? Just to let you know. Because the press has done a wonderful job of saying white evangelicals put Donald Trump into, uh, into the presidency. So there's, as you know, 40 to 42 percent of the population that that's fine. I'm glad he's a president. But there's obviously uh, more people, than (laughs) a majority, that are not real happy with him. And so because the press has said that, white evangelicals put Donald Trump in, then if you are white evangelical, yeah. Uh, Or if they perceive you being an evangelical, I don't think using that word around the city is all that great an idea. Those of you who have been at Redeemer over the years know that I hardly ever use the word. Nevertheless, if they perceive you as being a conservative Christian in some way, yeah, it's a problem. So uh, how you deal with that, I don't know. Um, I do think that if you... The question was just, is it a problem? Yes, it is. I do think if you are Asian or African-American or, uh, or if you're uh, Hispanic, it's a little less of a problem. And maybe you need to actually speak up right now at a time to say, hey, you know what? All, all born-again Christians aren't white, actually. And uh, the, the most important thing, I think, for people to put it this way evangelicals, meaning people who believe in the new birth, you got to be born again, you you don't get into heaven through your good works and just going to church, Um, uh, people that have a high view of the Bible and that sort of thing. Uh, A friend of mine says, around the world right now, there are literally hundreds of millions of these people, and they are as different as mammals. All mammals are mammals, right? But if you look at a house cat and think that's going to tell you something about an elephant, it's not going to tell you much. Uh, and there's a tendency to think that all the people who believe you got to be born again and you, the Bible is true and you need to believe in the blood of Jesus Christ and all that, that they're all the same politically. It is just not true. The world, there's a billion of those people around the world, and they come in all shapes and sizes when it comes to culture and politics. And that's, the best, that's my best way of talking about it with people right now, to say you just if, if you think you can dismiss uh, the, these these doctrines because there's a certain group of people right now that hold those doctrines that you don't like politically. you have to. Really, that's very ethnocentric. It's very American-centric. Most of the people in the world who believe these doctrines are not white, and they're not uh, ma- ma- male, by the way. Um, I think, uh, actually, Rebecca's going to be talking about that later. So I won't say anything.
2: OK. Um. Love and sharing the gospel with people, uh, especially family, who have been offended by you or the gospel before—any suggestions there?
1: Oh, you—you you mean you've—you've you've got something to live down? Is that the idea?
2: I, it sounds like that. Yes.
1: Well, then just <laughs> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that that wasn't irony. <laughs> that wasn't ironic. I um, I think uh, I've known plenty of people who, in fact, this is actually fairly typical. As a younger Christian, if you're enthusiastic and you're really excited about what you found in Christ, I think an awful lot of us, a pretty high percentage of us, do a really terrible job of talking about our faith in the early days. We can be very overzealous, uh, pretty clueless, and especially in our family. Um, and I actually do remember when I was a college student, and I was a fairly new Christian as a college student, it was, I forget, we had a, we had a, we had a syndrome. Very often, if a kid became a Christian uh, at college, and they got real excited, we said, now, first Thanksgiving, first Christmas when they went home, I said, don't hardly talk about it at all. Because unless you give us a little time to work on you, you're going to screw it up, and you're going to have your whole family hating Jesus Christ. And even if they go to church, they'll stop going to church immediately because of you. Because it was so typical of them. And if actually they did do it, they went home and they told everybody they're going to hell, and it's so wonderful to be a Christian. (laughs) You know, I love being a Christian, and you're all going to hell. And uh, seriously, they often did that. Generally, at that point, we just said, look, you just need to be quiet now. Just need to be quiet. It's not, you know, their destiny is not in your hands anyway. It's between them and God. And so just lay off and don't, don't act like you're their savior. Jesus is their savior. So uh, basically, I wasn't kidding when I said shut up. No irony at all.
2: <laughs> okay, so we're getting some questions about uh, parenting in light of the headwinds. Uh, what shifts do Christians need to make to raise children in the new culture with the missionary mindset?
1: Well, promise them they'll get their first cell phone when they turn 37, <laughs> and on if really good behavior, maybe 36. Uh, you know, and we're not getting that. You know, that's a that's a boy. That's a whole big subject. the the The, the problem is there was a woman by the way recently died who was a very prominent psychologist psychiatrist child psychologist i think and and she talked about the fact that every decade in the last 4 or 5 decades a kids peers are becoming more and more important and their family less important to their to their uh, being shaped and part of it is because they can be talking to their peers through social media incessantly all the time in a way that wasn't true so even like 20 years ago uh, they could really only talk to their peers like on a phone or if they came to their home and now they can be talking constantly so what happens is the, the values of the peer group um, is extra- much more shaping than than what they're getting at home or with their parents and I do think all I can tell you is I think you really have to look at that even though that can be uh, you can have a tremendous head you can really be butting heads over that but it is true that you can't just be agnostic about it or not um, not care who they're hanging out with. And it's not just hanging out physically. It's just who they're talking to all the time. I think that's a very big part. The other thing is what I would call, Christians do not, they, they, they will teach their kids doctrine. They'll say, you know, the Trinity, or you know, God created us, and you're teaching doctrine. But at the same time, the the, the world is catechizing your children. The world is teaching your children things, and um, the world is i' actually I mentioned some of them let me give you let me give you five or six. One is you have to be true to yourself. you have to decide who you are and you have to be true to yourself. No one has the right to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for him or her. You have to decide what your truth is and live it now both those things are slightly Different than Jesus Christ saying you have to lose yourself to find yourself, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. It's just a little difference. So what you have to do is you you actually need to identify the the messages your kids are getting in the songs they're hearing, in the in the commercials, in this in the movies and the stories and that sort of thing. And you need to actually connect them to doctrine and say so. If you know you we were teaching about this and this is saying this. So what's the problem? Do you see any problem there? You. you you have to do what De- Deuteronomy six says you're supposed to do, which is walk with your children constantly in in kind of informal discourse constantly talking about uh, do you can you analyze the worldview of that commercial we just saw I know it can drive your kids crazy especially once they get they'll, they'll be with you okay until somewhere around the age of thirteen when they you, you know you you I'm not saying kids have different temperaments. Some kids would find that overbearing. But you really do have to make sure that you're deconstructing the messages the kids are getting rather than just letting those messages come in unmediated, uh, unfiltered, and then think by taking the kids to a youth group and church on a Sunday, that's enough to offset it. It's not.
2: So what about starting a spiritual conversation with friends when no one shows any interest or asks questions?
1: Uh, I'll get to that. Honestly, I will. Okay, And the answer is, my answer always has been, don't force it. There are people, however, who've got temperaments that can do that winsomely and just bring it up. And you know who some of you are, Susan Nakorda. but the rest of us... (laughs) There were, seriously, there are people who've got temperaments that you can, they can do it, and there's people who mo- I think most people can't. But I, I'll tell you why. When it's when's the your, there are openings, but we'll talk about that later.
2: Okay. Um, okay. Another question: How can I keep myself from being discouraged if I keep inviting non-Christian friends to church and sharing Christ, and they keep declining?
1: Well, um, I listen. I I think part of what I'm trying to say about the headwinds, I think 30 years ago when we started Redeemer, the headwinds were not there as much, and I think it was easier to get somebody to come along to church, and I think there are uh, d- there's decreasing number of people who will just come to church if you invite them. I think there you need to be and by the way, you need to be in a. Also, there's decreasing numbers of people who you can just start a conversation up with Christianity, on Christianity and they say, oh, that's interesting. Let's, I love talking about religion. Let's talk about it. And that what that means is people have vastly longer incubation arcs. It takes take much more organic. It has to be much more relational, much more uh, listening, much more than you talk. It's got to be slower and more loving and more relational and less. I've got an event to take you to. So if they're not responding to it, then start way further back. Just develop relationships. We, well, we, we'll be talking a little bit about that too.
2: Okay. So we only have a, a few more minutes remaining, so we're going to take one last question. Um, less than 8% of the Redeemer community feel comfortable sharing their faith. What do we do if we don't feel brokenhearted for those who don't know the joy of Jesus?
1: Now... Read that again, Kelly. That sounded like it was two, two questions snuck into one. okay <laughs> sneaky person
2: less than <laughs> less than eight percent of the Redeemer community feel comfortable sharing their faith. What do we do if we don't feel brokenhearted yeah. for those who don't know the joy of Jesus?
1: well, and maybe i'm maybe I'm being unfair to you um, the, the the two I understand why somebody says I don't feel comfortable sharing my faith because I, I'm afraid I'm going to get questions I don't know how to answer, mm-hmm. and I think that the, your local church, you know, I don't know which which of the Redeemer churches you go to, or you may go to some other church, is the church has got. To, if you want to be, uh, let's just call it missional living. If you want to be much more engaged in missional living, your church needs to support you, and that doesn't. That means not necessarily deputize you and just say now go out and share the faith this week and come back and talk about it you need to have somebody who will help you grow in your understanding of things uh, where you could be in a group of people that talk about the questions you get and you share and you sharpen each other in your discussion so you feel better about that so there there does need tonight is an exhortation i don't think most of you are just going to say all by yourself without any help from your church or without any help from other believers, I'm just going to get more missional. It's just not going to happen. The church has got to support you in that. Now, the brokenhearted part, or the broken part where he said, I just don't know where... That's kind of getting close to the idea of what John Stott said, which is if you find that your heart is not moved enough to take the risk, it's not filled enough with a desire to see people find the faith, and uh, that you're just... Stott says it's the poverty of of your spiritual experience. And I was trying to say that um, in the end, a lack of desire, a lack of willingness, a lack of courage, a lack of willingness to stick your neck out probably does come from a cold heart. Um, So those are two questions. I think the church has to help you a lot in the one of helping you feel more like I can converse about this in an intelligent way. But you have to do something about the heart thing. Sorry, the church can't get in there. You know, your heart is, uh, is only you have access to that and God.
0: Thanks for listening to today's teaching. We pray that it challenged you and encouraged you. You can find more resources from Tim Keller at gospelandlife.com. Just subscribe to the Gospel and Life newsletter to receive free articles, sermons, devotionals, and other resources. Again, it's all at gospelandlife.com. You can also stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. This talk was recorded in 2019. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.